Welcome to the Real Estate Reserve Podcast with your hosts, Jason Balin and Ian Horowitz. Hey, hey, hey. How's everybody doing? What's up, man? What's going on? Uh, dude, I look terrible today. I had a terrible night at work last night. I had to stay up all night. Dude, it's like, I don't know. I need a new job. I, I hate to tell you this, and I'm sure I'm not the only one to tell you this, but you look pretty much the same every damn show that we do with the same hat and the same sweatshirt. So Ooh. that's, 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 uh, but that's okay. There's well, I noticed, subtle, I noticed a subtle change in the bags under my eyes. That, that's <laughs> how I determine if I'm looking good or bad that day. That's when my life's come down. I don't, your can't, the camera's not good enough to pick that up. So you're, you're good. So welcome to the Real Estate Reserve podcast. Today is uh, Friday. Friday, although a Friday seems like a Monday to a Sunday every day, pretty much seems the same. Uh, it's May 8th. We've been timestamping every one of our shows. Obviously, uh, it's important to timestamp shows because some of the things we talk about today might not be relevant tomorrow. Things have been changing very, very rapidly. But the good news about real estate investing as a whole is every single guest we've had, every single person we've talked to, Everyone's very, very optimistic about real estate investing in general. Yes, everybody is cautious, but at the same time, they're optimistic. And I can always tell you, I usually have a really good gauge on where the market is based on deal flow and lead flow that we get through our company at Hard Money Bankers. And there's a lot of opportunities out there and there's a lot of active real estate. So on the show today, we have Matt Fullerton from Chesapeake House Buyers. Really excited to interview him. And he's got a quick uh, or a few case studies that he's going to go through. And one of the things I love about working and talking and, and um, interviewing wholesalers is wholesalers have a good realm of exactly what's going on in the marketplace. They have to have they have to be really an expert in all aspects of investing. They need to know how to find really, really good prices, right? They need to understand the construction component of it uh, so they can talk intelligently to their uh, their buyers. They need to. They need to have a lot of buyers that want to buy properties from them. And let's be honest, if for some reason they can't wholesale the property, they still got to take it down. They need to have funding sources. They need to have contractors. They uh, eventually will need to find an end buyer. So that's the benefit of kind of the wholesale. And I've always, you know, I know a lot of people think wholesaling, there's a little, uh, a lot less barrier to entry and there's a lot less risk besides your potential deposit. But I typically will disagree with that and think wholesalers typically have a lot more skill sets than most other investors. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you bring up. I, you know, I never really thought about that, but why is wholesaling the entry level or why is it considered entry level? And maybe we should ask Matt that. But I agree that wholesaling can get really complex. And if you don't understand your numbers and you don't understand the real estate in general, um, wholesaling can get real complicated. Um, but why let me and you talk about it when we can bring Matt Fullerton from Chesapeake House Hunters in? Um, a fun fact about his company in 2019, they did just shy of seven figures we sure did hey, 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 absolutely how are things they're going pretty well i mean um yeah yeah you know things i think across the industry have have slowed a little bit in some cases like what we're seeing in the wholesale space is we're still seeing plenty of seller motivation in fact we're seeing more in a lot of cases especially with landlords you know small-time landlords we we thought right away would start getting hammered um, with tenants not paying and we want to start divesting and, and that's been the case we've had a we've we've definitely heard from a lot of landlords who want to sell and other you know other traditional sellers as well um, buyer pool drying up a little bit you know there's less hard money available 
but the best people have cash or really good funding sources. So we're not feeling a whole lot of pain right now. Yeah, uh, let's talk. Let, let's let's start actually. Why don't you just give everybody a quick background about you, kind of how you got started, and a little bit about your company and what you focus on. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm a lifetime sales guy. I've been in sales ever since my first like real job job when I was 18. Um, I started in real estate in uh, 2015 at uh, another company that's in the DC area. It's called Express Home Buyers. Um, started there just in sales. Worked my way up to the director of sales and acquisitions. You know, had the entire team under me before I uh, there was a CEO change and I decided to leave and start my own company with a partner. Uh, we started Chesapeake House Hunters in the fall of. 2018, last year in 2019, we did uh, 946k in wholesale fees against nice. an overhead of about 3100 and I think it's like 3160 a month. Yeah, no. So, yeah, so no, yeah, we don't have any debt. We have, you know, we have minimal overhead, so we haven't been stressed, you know, worrying about, you know, we haven't been sitting here stressing, worrying about projects getting completed, that kind of thing. Man, that's uh, that's awesome. And now, before we jump into you know again back into what you're seeing in the market, I think we need to uh, exploit that. What? How did you guys do nine hundred forty-six thousand dollars in wholesale fees on a thirty-one hundred dollar a month budget? Well, we um, so when we when I left Express Home Buyers, we had a uh, we had a non-compete that was in place uh, until November of 2019. So the the way we negotiated that non-compete because there were some differences about it at the beginning was that. You know, we'd still be able to conduct business as a wholesaler, a real estate investor, but we wouldn't be able to use any traditional marketing avenues. So we couldn't do uh, PPC. We couldn't do TV, radio, bandit signs. We couldn't buy lists. We couldn't, you know, we, we couldn't do any of the traditional stuff. Um, so we really had to think outside the box, like, hey, how can we get deals? You know, it's always been my thing that good salespeople uh, will find deals, you know, or find a way to make deals. So we thought about it and my initial gut would say, hey, you know, there's, I'm, I'm part of a real estate brokerage. I know a lot of people who are as well. You know, my wife's an agent. Why don't I go to these brokerages and tell them, hey, I know you guys get deals, especially, you know, a lot of you guys get listings that are ugly, that you hate going in. You're afraid of, you know, the mold. You're afraid of you're, uh, the smell. You know, it's nasty. You don't think it's going to sell in the market. It's really, you know, going to be a big hassle and a waste of your time because it's going to sell cheap too. Um, what if when you get listings like that, you bring them directly to me, I don't charge it, you know, I don't charge any closing costs. I don't charge it. You know, we even pay transfer and rec. You get to keep all your commission. You don't even have to do the paperwork. I don't care. And the deal's done. I'm a cash buyer. You don't have to do any work. And man, that worked. You know, we started getting deals, referrals like that right away. And the next thing I thought is, you know, what are we good at? And you guys mentioned, you know, wholesalers, you know, it seems a lot of people view it as the low barrier to entry, the um, the initial step in investing. And I, I actually, you know, I disagree myself because I think, you know, what the thing that we do best is we're really good salespeople. And there's a and there's a lack of that in this industry. So what we found is other companies, even you know, mom and pop companies, other large companies, they have tons and tons of leads that just, you know, they get worked for a day or two and then they fall by the wayside. They sit in, you know, a nurture or a drip campaigning with maybe an email or a text or a ringless voicemail here and there, but no real follow-up. So my pitch was, hey, send me these old leads, you know, that are more or less dead that you're not working. Let us work them. If we get them under contract and wholesale them, you know, we'll split the profits. And if we don't, you know, you're backward in the same place you were before. You got nothing to lose. And people did that and and we killed it. We have people yeah. now who, we have we have um now we have five separate companies who pay for inbound marketing and the leads come directly to us. We work wow, nice. 
question for you related to real to invest to sorry real estate agents because agents in general and you know i hate to say it but a lot of times agents and investors aren't fully aligned because it's just a different type of just a, you know as close to the same industry as it is it's so far apart it is. um and, and yeah. they don't fully understand it and we've done endless videos and podcasts to try to help agents become investors because I think that's important. They're already doing the hard work of, you know, solidifying deals, having relationships with buyers and sellers. You know, they need to be investing in assets, but that's a different story. How much pushback did you have originally with, oh, number one, with agents, number one, oh, it's illegal to, to wholesale, that's not gonna work, or just related to the process of, hey, you have the pro you know, you have the property, you have a controlled either through a listing agreement or uh, whatever relationship, uh, because I'm guessing you didn't take these properties down first. You weren't the end buyer. You were literally putting them under contract with the agent and then, or with the owner and then wholesaling them afterwards. You know, was there an education process that you had to work with agents? Cause I know that's kind of a, you know, a, a sticky point sometimes with investors. No, you know what it was. Um, it was, I thought there was going to be quite a bit of pushback, you know, and I'm, I, I'm an agent, although I've never done, you know, a traditional real estate transaction. I've never wrote up a listing agreement, never showed a house. Um, my wife's an agent. She's a, she's a successful agent you know, here in our area. And she does, she has her own separate flipping company as well. Um, but so she, you know, we already had, you know, in our, the first brokerage I went to was my own. So people knew me there. And then, you know, I, all the only thing I ever heard was, Hey, isn't wholesaling illegal? And that was a real quick, no, it's not. It's really simple. Here's how it works. And th they understood. So I, I really didn't get pushback from agents. The only time I do is when, you know, a similar question to what you just said, Hey, isn't wholesaling illegal or, Hey, aren't you guys, you know, just middlemen, you know, we get that, of course. And I just explained, yeah, we are, but you know, we get things done. We make these deals happen. Yeah, sure. It makes a lot of sense to pitch it as, look, you're going to have a dead lead. It's going to waste your time, you know, do what you're good at. You want to do high end sales. Why take a hundred thousand dollar listing or something that is a big piece of crap? Like why, why are you going to do that to yourselves? And you know, you, you've taken the time. And I think this is where a lot of wholesalers actually go wrong is that they don't match their message right to either what's going on in the environment or what the seller is actually distressed for or whatever it may be. Um, so that was, that's a, a very strong point that you, you brought hopefully to everybody's attention. What, um, what's your guys immediate plan um, for marketing here over the next few months to actually match that message or how do you see your, how do you view yourselves uh, conveying yourselves to sellers and other real estate agents in your niche market that you handle? Well, we're going to kind of keep doing what we've been doing. Um, you know, we have a decent lead flow from our uh, JV lead partners. We still, you know, we, we now we do purchase lists from list providers um, and we still get old leads at a pretty high volume from other companies that we have ongoing, you know, relationships with. So we're not, you know, we don't plan on, changing things up. I'm not positive. It's a great time to spend a whole lot of money on marketing, you know, just because the sellers are still out there, but we need to make sure that our deals are really good uh, because the buyer criteria has changed a lot. I mean, I, I saw a hard money lender yesterday that was doing a, a friend of mine emailed me. He was doing, they were doing, you know, 75% of L, LTV, et cetera, et cetera. And now they've dropped their criteria to 25%. So on a deal, he sent them, he had to bring 130 grand to the closing table. And I mean, they just, you know, they just totally, blew out their, their criteria. So there's, there's a lot of that that's hurting buyers. So we know deals criteria has to be good. And we usually want, are trying to lock things up right now where we know we have someone in place who's going to want that property. Otherwise, you know, you're going to end up releasing it, you know, more stuff than you want to. And, and there's stuff out there right now that's great. There were great deals 90 days ago. 
that people are looking at like, you know, it's an ugly duckling now. Yeah, we've been, I, I see that, I see that on the hard money side as, as well. And, you know, we've obviously, as a, as a very active lender over the last 13 years, you know, this market's similar. We're relating it back to like 2010 ish, 2011, not 2007 or six, more yeah. like early 2000s or 2010s ish around um, just based on what's out there. And, you know, keep in mind like consumer confidence and investor confidence is slightly down just because they don't see the amount of uh, stock deals that we all see, we're all experts. We're in this, in this space all the time. And, you know, we, you know, the private, you know, some of the private capital investors that we've worked with for years, um, they still are very active and want to be in, invested in space, but they have questions and they're on, and they're unsure. It's like, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen there? And, um, you know, I can go in so many directions related to this exact topic because it, it relates. And I agree that right now kind of wholesalers that have a good buyer's list, you know, before, Hey, spit it out, spew that whole darn deal out and, you know, highest offer wins. But there that wasn't, that, that was a model that worked for like five or six years as things, you know, as things were going up and, and you could buy a property today and sell it tomorrow for a profit without doing anything. And yeah. I agree that right now things are different. It's, Hey, you know, let's see what an, the, this particular appetite is for a certain investor um, and make sure I'm only, you know, giving them that particular, you know, that particular deal to buy, you know, Hey, what, you know, and it's almost like backwards now. Instead of, hey, I know that this is a good deal and someone will buy it. It's, hey, what's your appetite? What are the types of deals you're looking for? What neighborhoods are you looking for? And then work backwards to do that. And again, like, I don't think there's anything good or bad with it. It's just, it's just different. And everyone's, everyone's got, to, got to pivot. But that being said, I do believe that the deals that we all buy, sell, lend on, rent today are better than the ones that we did 60 days ago. Yeah. I, just, I think I think there are. And, you know, unfortunately, the masses are probably going to get weeded out with some of this, but the stronger players in the space will continue to be. And that being said, there's going to be more deal flow for those stronger players and more market share for them, for everybody to capture. I mean, our company has benefited because all the institutional backed hard money lenders went out of business or paused, um, you know, currently. And we've only used you know, our own capital and private capital for 13 years. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden there's a huge, humongous spike in business, um, which certainly isn't. But what it does mean is, hey, we potentially have um, equal then deals that we've had in the past, but they're stronger. And I and I believe that you'll probably see that as well, kind of as uh, you know, as a as a wholesaler. And another thing we thought about is, you know, we flipped houses before, and, and like I said, my wife owns a separate flipping company, so you know, we know the drill. And we've actually got a really good partner on the construction side there. So what we've been looking at also is like, hey, I mean, this might have been a forty grand assignment fee three months ago, but now with a ten grand fee, you know, why don't we take this thing down ourselves and make seventy, eighty grand in three months as opposed to ten grand today? You know, before we were all about the velocity of money, so we would take you know a thirty grand wholesale fee as opposed to a sixty grand flip because it was going to happen faster. We're going to keep that money in the pipeline and keep moving. But now that things are a little bit more slowed down, it's going to make sense for us to flip some of these deals where yeah. you know, the we might we might still be able to wholesale them, but the deal is going to just look so much more attractive as a flip. So we're, we've set up to do that. We're prepared. Um, I imagine we'll be doing some of those very soon. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. And, you know, I think by you having seen so many deals over the past few years, you have a pretty good gauge of where this market's going to land and um, you know, what risk you're actually taking versus, you know, say maybe a new wholesaler. It's like, oh, I'm just going to go out there, something under contract, I'll sell it, you know, 
Uh, there's a lot more risk there nowadays, um, especially with not knowing where the market's potentially going. Um, good news is you're here with us on Friday, and every Friday we try to do a case study. Um, that's what we were we were talking about. Um, do you have any pro, uh, deals you can share that you've done over the past few months that you've either had to deal with the coronavirus to get the deal done or some crazy deals that you've had happen to you over the past few months? Yeah, I've got a few I can share with you guys if you've got a few minutes. Yeah. Um, so one thing one thing that we, you know, a few, ah, geez, this is more than a few months ago now, but it's, um, you know, I think it was last year, maybe, you know, around this time, maybe a little later, um, had a very motivated seller, had a townhouse, the tenants had vacated, they had repainted, they had put new carpet in, the house was in, you know, it was in good shape. You know, it's not, you know, nothing brand new, not renovated, anything like that, but in good shape. But they just owed, they owed way too much, you know, for the for the traditional formula. You know, they owed, you know, it, the, the, they it totally blew the 70% or 75% um, buy figure, you know, out of the water, especially with repairs that would go into it. Because, you know, if you're going to flip a house, flip that house, you're going to want to redo the kitchen, the bathrooms. They were fine and workable and serviceable and the house looked good. It just wasn't, you know, renovated. So I took a look at the neighborhood and looked at the lowest sales. and was like, man, you know, nothing has sold as low as they want to sell this for in two years. That was the first thing I thought. And the second thing was, you know, this house is rent ready. You know, like, I mean, there's you can literally buy this house and run a vacuum through it and, you know, wipe it, you know, have the cleaning ladies come through it and then you're you're ready to rent it. So. I said, you know what, let's put it under a contract. Even if we put it under a contract, we can pro I think we can we can either keep it ourselves because the rent numbers look great, or someone's gonna want to buy this as a rental for their portfolio. It's a townhouse, it's in district heights, you know, it's performing, section eight's available over there. It's it's a good place. So we locked it up and we, you know, marketed it and I had medium expectations. You know, I was getting my financing line with our lender to buy it for a rental and and I my phone started blowing up right away. You know, and we got so you know, I had like I had like five people bid against each other to get the house as a rental. You know, I think we sold it at like ninety-two percent. You know, they just wanted it. We sold it. You know, they did. Someone just wanted a rental, even at that number. It was going to cash flow so well, and it was still still had enough equity for people to be interested. Right. So, but, did the seller get cashed out, or did they just break even on their deal? Uh, no, the seller. We ended up putting five grand in their pocket. So I, you know, we try we try to put money in someone's pocket just so they can keep you know keep moving along. Nice. We, you don't want someone who's, you know, they're selling their house at a hardship. That's what we right. try to avoid. Right. And then another, another thing like that is, um, is condos and apartments. Like you can, the, the deal, the buy figures on condos and apartments are much, can be much different than they are on say, on say single family houses, because A, there's a lot less work to do and B, they rent a lot easier and there's a lot more available tenants. So we figured out that for condos and apartments are even in decent shape. If the seller wants, you know, anything, you know, you know, 20% below market, you know, we're, we're in on them because we know we can move them because people want to buy them at that if they're rent ready. So we figured out that there's this whole other market, you know, where you throw out the percentages and you figure and you make. Deals. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting because usually you'd think with condos, it would be opposite. Uh, in general, I know a lot of lenders, including ourselves, we usually reduce our LTVs with condos just because obviously, especially older style condos, because higher risk of, of condo fees, special assessments, yeah. things, things like that, that, that build into equity. And, you know, Ian and I are, are good friends with, with a wholesaler named Terry Royce up in the Baltimore market. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're saying is similar to what he's saying. I know, you know Terry, I've always, Terry's my boy. Yeah, and, and, and we've, uh, you know, we always talk about, Hey, what do you think the after repair value on this property is? And, and it's not really a metrics that's as important to him, 
as what are investors paying for some of these yeah. some some of these properties and in general and it's kind of you know kind of makes sense and and again you know wholesalers like you wholesalers like him will succeed based on a few things number one you know experience you know volume experience buyers list things like that because you know you guys know more than almost anybody else what things in certain neighborhoods sell for as is to an investor even if they don't um hit the formula. Like you said, it doesn't hit the 65 or 70 or 75 cents formula. But that being said, people will still potentially buy it. You know, I'm, I talked to Terry last night and this morning about a deal that we're working on, uh, or a deal he's working on, and, and we're, we're probably gonna do the financing for it. And, you know, it was interesting, because he was like, you know, I, all I know is my, you know, my investors in general have been paying $80,000 for this particular for this particular area. That's all I know. Yeah. And my job is just to get the property less than 80, knowing that it would work. And this particular deal, it's not going to work out as great as you expect because that 80 turned into 70, yeah. <laughs> you know, over over the last oh, yeah. 60 days, over the last 60 days. Yeah. But but still, you know, that that was a way to look at it. And it's funny to think about it because, you know, wholesalers have their metrics of a way that they they value their assets that they're buying and what they can unload it for us as a lender. Ours is completely different to what we look at than you might look at. And then, you know, Ian as a landlord might look at something completely, you know, completely different. And then you have a flipper that says, hey, there's no way we're going to make money in this. So it's never really thought about that. But there's a lot of different ways to, you know, internally analyze based on, you know, what works best for someone's business model. Yeah, we found that there's a ton of different exit strategies. So what I, you know, and every time we get outbid on, if we get outbid on something, I, the first thing I think is, OK, there's my buyer. Next, you know, there's my buyer next time. They're willing to pay more for this property. So I always yeah. try to find out who outbids me because they're a buyer next time. Um, and I always try to look at deals from, I don't just look at the, yeah, I think there's a lot of dogma around the 70% of ARV thing, less repairs. Sure. Right? And, you know, there's a lot of like people who are, you know, and that's great. That's a great formula for people who just flip, you know, it protects them. It's good numbers. It's hard to screw it up. As long as you get your ARV right and your repairs, you know, for the most part, right, you're going to be in good shape. But in a lot of other cases, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't matter. Uh, one thing that we've also found that that you know can change the dynamic is um, is what um, is selling, what sells on market as is. Like if I look at a, a neighborhood and I've, you know, I think I need to be at 200 percentages wise, but then I look at the neighborhood and see nothing has sold less than 250 in two years, and the ones that are selling at you know 250, 253 are just total shit. Then I know that you know in our, I know that we've got something there, and I can make that deal. I do. I used to get so mad at Terry when he changed his business model. That I'm like, Terry, the numbers don't work. Oh, I don't care. Uh, other investor sales are there. I'm like, I get it, man. But God damn it, like, it doesn't work for me. Stop, man. Like, I'll buy everything. Uh, but I, yeah, I give you guys credit. You know, it's a it's an unconventional way to do business, um, and it's a way to make more deals work for you. Because if the banks are selling for that amount, why not get that money? Um, and we actually took that same strategy. We don't wholesale a lot, um, but we do come across deals and took that same strategy on when we knew we didn't want the deal and it, it does work uh with that being said what i'm gonna ask you off the wall question what's the most unconventional deal you got done let's see man there's whether it was a buy side exit strategy something crazy with the house i mean i've, I've had a couple like okay so one for instance you know it's it's actually a house that my wife just finished um when i worked at Express as the director of sales and acquisitions. I was I did all the dispositions. So 
um, uh, agent in my area bought a house for me when I was there, bought a house, closed on it. Um, you know, a guy I had known for a long time. We had a relationship with prior to working there and he, um, bought a house for, you know, to flip in a neighborhood that, you know, my wife and I both really like, but this is before we were doing, you know, too many flips ourselves. So, um, he bought the house, you know, and, and that was it. And then, um, last year, about last year, towards the end of summer, he gave me a call and said, Matt, look, man, I, um, remember that house on East street. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it rings a bell. He's like, can you come take a look at it? I was like, Oh, is it done? You're ready to put on that. Look, sounds great. He's like, no, man, it's not done. So I went there and looked at it. The house was, I mean, it was, it was an older bungalow, you know, 1940s bungalow, a uh, water view house, nice neighborhood, but it needed a lot, you know, it was old, but there were still good things like plumbing, electric, HVAC were all good. And he had, he had given the deal to his wife and said, this is your deal. You know, you do it. You, you've been wanting to flip houses. And she, unfortunately, sadly suffered a, um, a psychotic break during the work on the house and had the, her team like completely got the house electric plumbing, um, all the floor choice. I mean, the house was basically a shell. There's second floors being held up by a bunch of like cleverly placed two by fours. It was a design. It was a disaster. He said, man, I got to get out of this. I've spent 50 grand to get it to here. And all I've done is make it worse. Can you get me out at this number? And I looked at it and he's like, and I looked at it and I was, I knew it was going to be hundred grand for, you know, and I, so I said, you know, I took a look at it. It still looked like a deal. So we, we jumped in and it was a mess from the start. She, you know, tore up so much. We had to get new permits. We had to do new structural stuff, just everything, you know, basically building a house from the ground up. But, um, we finished it, um, got on the market and sold it and made 90 grand. Just wow. like, it took a while. There's a lot of hassles, but I mean, made a lot of money on the flip. So well, there, there's a, there, J Jason likes to say that DC is a little more insulated. And I guess that's the benefit of working down in DC. You can get a, Get a little bit higher, well, higher dollar for some stuff. Well, well, there's higher price points on some of these things, so you know there's more room on that. You yeah, know, there's not enough room on that. There's not enough room on a deal like that if you shouldn't have bet on a hundred fifty thousand dollar after repair value. Yeah. And like it does, it doesn't work like that. Like I've been having conversations, you know, with our team because I have an office in in Philadelphia and a partner up there that that runs that office, and I'm like, there's a big difference between doing doing a loan on a $150,000 property and a $300,000 property, yeah. right? So let's say you do a 50 LTV deal. Um, you know, we, we were going up to 65%. Lately, we've been cutting back to like 50 or 55. But let's just use 50% because it's an easy figure. So if I do a loan off a $150,000 property, you know, I have a 50, you know, 50% of that's 75 grand, right? I have set, there's $75,000 in equity, right? Call, you know, let's say it's real equity. On the other end, if I do a three hundred thousand dollar property at fifty, you know, hundred at fifty percent, that's a hundred fifty thousand dollar loan. I have a hundred fifty thousand dollars in real equity. There's a lot more you can do yeah. percentage wise on paper wise. Technically, it's the same thing. I did a fifty LTV deal, but it doesn't work like that in reality because chances are, an ARV of one fifty that needs a full renovation and an ARV of three hundred that needs a full renovation, the costs aren't all that much difference. Well, it's a two <laughs> costs totally different aren't. animals. Yeah, you're talking about two totally different animals. You know, it's going to cost the same thing. You're if it's a yeah. 2,000 square foot row house in Baltimore with an ARV of 150 versus a 2,000 square foot row house in Northwest DC with an ARV of 900, you know it's there. It's still gonna cost. It's still gonna cost similar to cover all that square footage and put it under HVAC and put new yeah. and do everything. So it, 150 deal just doesn't work. You know, what I mean, in a lot of cases the renovation's too much. So we need to take that account too. Hey, the percentages don't matter when it starts getting down to the lower dollar amounts because 
if it's going to cost 50 grand to renovate a house and ARV is only a hundred, you're, you know, you're probably screwed unless you're getting it for five grand or something. Yeah. And, 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 and Ian and investors in DC, like they're not following that percentage as dollar figure. It's cool. I'm going to buy a property, you know, I'm going to buy a property in Petworth for whatever, yeah. 500 grand, 500 grand put, which I believe is overpriced, but whatever, that's what people are paying. They pay, you know, they buy it for 500 grand. They, they pay 500 grand. They put a hundred into it, 600 grand, and then they try to sell it for 699. And chances are their construction costs are higher. They sell it for lower and they go in and they make 30 grand. I mean, that's a lot of freaking heavy lifting and a lot of risk, but uh, you know, a lot of them are, are cash buyers, but like, that's the way that it's, that's just the model that's set up. It's, and, and unfortunately, and I'm guessing that you're, you're probably similar to this. It's, you know, high volume, uh, lower margins, just keep moving, 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 moving. Obviously, you know, there, there's big deals here and there. Let's actually real quick pivot to something you talked about that is along the lines of this related to why you're doing some more flipping. And I get it. I fully understand it because, you know, why do 10, you know, 10 yeah. hard wholesales to make five or 10 grand a piece? when you could cherry pick one of those and, and make that the same amount of money. So, yeah, exactly. you know, what's kind of your, your strategy for kind of, you know, setting that up, the game plan is just going to be whatever you cannot, uh, you know, get a good enough wholesale fee on, you'll use that as an acquisition strategy to purchase. Yeah. What we're going to look at is, um, you know, we're even considering, you know, if a deal looks really good on the flip side, just taking it down and not even worrying about trying to wholesale it because, you know, well, another thing I don't want to do is send out, you know, send out this deal and everyone make me an offer at asking. And then I'm like, oh shit, you know, I'm going to make 20 at asking, but I still might make 75. So never mind, guys. Sorry. So we're going to, you know, we're going to really look at that hard before we, you know, decide to send anything out as a wholesale deal. But what we're looking for is, you know, safer numbers on our end, you know, somewhere around the 70%. Uh, we'd like to keep, keep it in the DC region, DMV. Um, we're really lucky that we have a, a really great construction partner that will, um, that will handle the construction, manage it all, do all that. Um, friend of ours, um, Tom Parmentier from Max House Price. So they're gonna, so that you know takes all that hassle away from us. We don't have to worry about the construction and managing it and everything. We can just keep on moving with our business while that gets handled. Um, so we're, what we're looking for is deals with good percentages in our areas that we know, and, and we're lucky. You know, we're wholesalers, so we do a lot of deals a year. You know, we do somewhere between five and ten a month. So we take a really hard look at every neighborhood in the DMV all the time over and over and over again. So we know it really well. So we're confident in our ARVs. We're confident in, you know, what we're buying and just really it's, we talked about it's the next deal that looks like it's a home run flip. We're just going to take it down. And you brought up a, you brought up a point about the DMV area because you know it very well. Uh, I'm a Baltimore guy. I know that I don't like the Capitol Beltway, so have fun with it, but that's not where I'm going. Um, the question is, is there's a lot of national wholesalers out there that you know virtual wholesale whatever the heck you want to call it do you see you do you see yourself expanding your business to a regional based or national based um and getting into that market or do you plan on staying super niche right here and do what you do really good it's it's tough to say right now you know initially we actually had some plans of moving into another market uh, in q2 um and we were considering moving into the tampa market we know that market well uh, my partner and I both have um, have you know people in place down there who can work with us right away. Uh, we have MLS access there, so that was something that we were we were strongly considering. But COVID made us take a little bit of a step back. Um, another thing that happened was when I worked at Express, you know, they tried to expand nationally and it burned them. You know, tried to do things a little too fast. So what we want to do is really you know make sure we know something, we know a market before we step into it. You know, we don't want to step into a market and 
and waste our time, waste our money, you know, and, and kick the can down the road for three months and not have anything to show for it and not have spent that time on our business. So we're trying to be really conscientious of that, you know, long, long answer to a short question. Um, we could, um, I think that we'll probably look into that just when the timing is right. And we're not sure when that'll be. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a valid point that, you know, you want to be good. You want to be really good at what you do, you know, uh, yeah. and you want to understand the market, you know, you're putting yourself into an interesting spot. Me personally, I'm a more or less a backyard type guy, you know, but it needs to be within our realm of touch, uh, before we're going to do a deal. I'm not, you know, I know a lot of guys out of DC have a lot of big money and they're investing in trailer parks in Memphis, Tennessee, but like, are you really getting the best thing for yeah. Out there, you know, so it's it's an interesting business model. That's the reason I asked. I also know that you are a part of uh, Steve Cavanaugh and Alex Pardo's mastermind, which we had um, on here, and we enjoyed a conversation with them. What are some takeaways, or what's the advantage to you being involved in a mastermind? How how has it excelled your business? Oh man, so I think um, you know, first thing I tell newbies all the time, like, hey, how can I learn fast? I say, go to meetups. You know, join, go to meetups, and be a sponge and learn from people and see who can provide value and. You know, for people who have been in the business a little bit longer, I think mastermind is you know really a, masterminds are really a similar thing. You're meeting with people from you know other parts of the country, different strategies, different thought processes, you know, and we tend to get locked into these grooves of thinking in our brains. You know, like I I tend to look at something certain ways that just you know other people don't look at it that way. So I find it really valuable to you know to throw you know all my ideas out there in a room full of other people who you know we respect who are accomplished equally or more so. And um, and get their feedback, and we've we've taken a lot of um, actionable things from that mastermind and and implemented them already. So it's been it's been a big help. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely enjoy the uh, for us what we do at conference scene, and you know we get the same type of thing. We find the big operators that have larger portfolios. It, it is hard going to some of the meetups. I enjoy helping other people out, and you know you got your clique of friends, but it is also sometimes fun to be in the room and you're you're the lowest level in that room and it is enjoyable to learn from other people yeah um with that being said you know you, you've said a lot we've enjoyed our time uh last question are you a book reader or a podcast guy which what's your go-to oh man i'm a book reader i mean i do both but i'm a book reader but i'm a book listener more so i have the audible app man i have like i mean i, I go through about a book a week so what's uh what's the number one book that you think somebody should listen to right now Oh man, the best book. I think, you know, my, one of my classics, I'm sure it's been said a million times. One of the books that changed my life is the four hour work week that and um, unscripted by MJ DeMarco. Those are both books, yep. especially for people who are looking to be entrepreneurs and looking to see what it takes. I mean, I think both those books were life changing for me. So um, I would, I would highly recommend those, you know, as a starting point for anyone. Yeah. If you could, um, when you, uh, when you roll out of here, if you want to leave that in the comments section for people so they can find it. Sure. Uh, Appreciate the uh, the suggestions. We've read both of them, enjoyed both of them. Four hour work week. Tim Ferriss, man, he just puts it all out there. He uh, definitely. Love you, yeah, you know, take and it takes uh, it takes some balls to do some of this stuff. You know, they, a lot of people do have fear of, am I going to lose my business and whatever else. Yeah. Um, Matt, where's the best yeah. place we can find you? Or sorry, Jason, go ahead. No, go no, go ahead. Go I was Matt, where's the best place we can find you? How can people get a hold of you? Um, if they have deals, if they want to work with you, um, you know, where can we find you? Yeah, um, you can find me. Um, you know, I um, I do a lot of outreach on Facebook. You know, I talk to a lot of the other investors. So you can find me on Facebook. I'm just Matt Fullerton. You know, it's a picture of me making a weird face, I think. Um, you can also find me on our website. 
um, chesshousehunters.com. Um, and then my email is matt at chesshousehunters.com. And I can put all that in the, in the comments as well. Yeah, please. Yeah, please do. Cause, uh, although we're live on Facebook, my, uh, hard money bankers facebook page equity warehouses facebook page a bunch of real estate groups that were associated to the cool news with this software we can stream into multiple platforms but at the same time we we get a lot of engagement and interaction you know over the next few days as well for those who um you know aren't able to hop on live midday every day so yeah make sure to add the info there and you know people can keep the conversation going you got it i appreciate cool. it appreciate cool. it thanks Thanks, Matt. We appreciate it. Hey, guys. Have a good one. Thanks for having me. You too. Thanks. Cool. What do you think, Ian? No, you know, it's always good to go. I hate to say that, you know, now that you brought that up and Matt brought it up, is that like going back to the basics, but wholesaling isn't the basics. Wholesaling is like, you know, it's almost like the top level line when you start to think about it. It's like it is. all these other dispositions and other parts of real estate, whether it's a lender or as an investor, and then you get to apply them in wholesaling. People think that wholesaling's the beginning because it's the least risky. They, they believe this. I'm not stating that's the case. They believe it's the least risky and the least amount of cash out of pocket. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, if you only got $1,000 to work with, you know, it's hard to do anything, including wholesale. It, wholesaling, it just is. Right. You need to find, you need, I mean, because keep in mind, a wholesaler has got to buy a number, got to buy a property for cheaper than what they would want to buy it for normally to begin with because someone else is going to want to buy it for that price so they got to buy it for 10 percent cheaper so if a property needs to be purchased by an investor at a hundred thousand dollars well guess what you can't buy that property at a hundred thousand dollars you got to buy it at ninety thousand dollars and that's where the misconceptions come from all the time now keep in mind over the last few years things have been different they just have you know you could buy a property today for 100 and sell it tomorrow for 105 and you know that happens and that arguably has happened over the last 10 10 years 12 years like maybe that that has happened that way so you know very quickly in times like this who's going to stay on top and who weren't you know it was very very easy for me when we started hard money bankers who to network with and who to spend time with and who who were the the bull you know the bullshitters and who were the real people you know it was the lenders you know for those of everybody in the baltimore area that knew doc frost and rec frost um you know he was the biggest one of the biggest lenders in baltimore area and knew and knew everything and i got a lot of very key uh principles from him now he obviously wasn't like a mentor to me or anything i had actually only met him a few times and talked to him on the phone a few times but every time i did it was very very valuable related to hey if i you know usually i can determine uh, how how my portfolio is doing by how many defaults I have, you know, in his mind that 10% of his portfolio should be in some respects, you know, in some, you know, some part of default, either missing a payment or foreclosure. And if it was long as it was 10%, if it was lower than 10%, then he had to, he had to be more aggressive. If it was higher than 10%. He was being too aggressive. So you learn a lot from, from people like Matt said as well, from networking with the right people. You know, it's hard when you start to know who the bullshitters are and who the right people are because someone comes into a networking group that has an outgoing personality and, you know, hey, yeah, man, I'm doing this deal, I'm doing this deal, I'm doing this deal, I'm doing this deal. And it's like, well, you can't be doing all of these things. You know, n nobody, nobody typically has their hands involved in everything. You know, maybe they, maybe they have been involved in everything, but they're all super, super focused on one trait, one strategy, one skill set. That's typically the most successful people. So 
you can usually call out a bullshitter really, really quickly. And, you know, I'll talk to real estate investors all the time that call me about deals. It's like, yeah, man, I've been doing all this. I've been doing all this. I, you know, I own the biggest of this. I own the biggest of that. Well, if you own the biggest one, you know, where is it? Like what, <laughs> what happened to it? You had the most successful wholesaling company. What happened to it? You know, and that's, um, and that's what's weird. You know, it's funny that you brought up that point, but we had the same exact conversation the other day of like, hey, hard money bankers business model is I'm going to lend and I'm going to lend it really good deals. And this is my LTV. And, you know, for a long time, Equity Warehouse, our business model was to crank out single family rental houses. And slowly, as we built a portfolio, we're starting to find out as we move up asset classes is it might be just to take down one big deal and do one big deal right and do that once a year or twice a year um, and really zero in on your niche market. You know, we, sure, we could go out and have a marketing arm and do wholesaling and we can have a relationship with hard money bankers and have a, a lending arm and, and have this and have that. But is it really worth it or just do what you do really good? Make that right. Do it very, very good. Just like Matt was saying, you know, get out there. I understand DMV. I'm not going to go national. I'm going to work on DMV market for now and do this right and put my systems in place and go from there, you know? So um, it's just an interesting underlying point that seems to come up over and over and over again. And it even relates to the four hour work week. You know, it's like, get that business, get that book that he recommended, get that, get that, get your business in a, in a place where you can get it to go and go right and be hands off, you know? So um, yeah, no, ex no, ex ex yeah, exactly. And again, different people want different things. You know, it depends on, you know, depend. You know, we we've had our fair share of doing consulting for people <laughs> over, over the years. And, you know, if if you're working with a consultant or a coach or a mentor, the first thing that needs to come out of their mouth for you is not really anything related to this business. It's what the hell do you want? What are you trying to accomplish? And what resources do you have? If you don't have any money, you can't flip a property right now. It's challenging. It's challenging. Now, it doesn't have to be your own money. I'm not stating that. But if you don't have any money right now and you know that there's going to be costs, real costs involved in flipping a house and you don't have any money, well, guess what? Those conversations have to be about what resources, number one, what resources you do have, what resources you don't have. Cool. Well, maybe it's time to go find a partner. Maybe it's time to go find this. You know, do you have any lines of credit that you could potentially tap? Like you, like first off, it needs, you know, step one needs to be what the heck do you want out of the, this business? And step two needs to be a, um, a reality check of what you're willing to do and what you aren't willing to do because everyone's willing to do lots of things. And, you know, some of the, the coaching that I've done in the past with, you know, uh, Josh Weinman, who I've been friends with for a long period of time, like what he's going to do and what you're going to do is very, very different. Or what I'm going to do is very, very different. I know Josh, you know why Josh got good deals all, all these years is he went freaking door to door and door knocked. And that was his business model. You will never see me door knock. I am not doing that. I'm not willing to do that. I would rather spend money on something to get deals in the door and call me instead of the other way around. Right. That's what he wants to do. So it depends. You know, a lot of you know, a lot of people that have capital would rather put that capital to work and have deals come in that way or work with wholesalers. People that don't have capital, you know, you might have to, you know, grind harder in order to you know, right. to get deals. And, and Josh used a resource that he has, whether he, you know, he wants to admit it or not. He's a great, he's a high eye personality and he's a great sales guy. Right. So he utilized the resource that he had. And, you know, when you bring this up, like talking about what Matt talked about, think about it. He left express home buyers is a big company. He left a big company in a really good position to go out with literally no resources. No it, capital wasn't the issue in his, sense 
it was he has an ND or a, a non-compete that literally handcuffed him. And he said, how can I go out and be resourceful and go still do deals and still be profitable and not pull my hair out while I do them? And he went That's out right. and avoided a niche in the market uh, that I know a lot of people probably wanted to do. He actually took action and did it. Um, and that was that's like super motivating, you know? Um, and I, I think another point that he brought up and me and you were talking about this the other day, uh, and that's why we've been doing these shows is so that we don't have to talk on the phone all the time. Let's, let's bring it right here so other people can learn from it. But you know, when you keep talking about like deals that were good yesterday, but they're better, you know, potentially better today or worse today is like, we were looking at a deal that I saw a few months ago and then it came back around price has been reduced. But the question is, is it still a deal? It was a deal then, is it a deal now at the reduced price and will it be a deal tomorrow? Um, you know, with the ever changing landscape, it, it, it's difficult to get involved and nail down what pricing is going to be, but you still have to analyze deals. So as the market starts to stabilize, you're ready to go on the other side of this. Exactly. So exactly, exactly, exactly. exactly. Other than that, I did see some, uh, maybe Monday we'll have to recap, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on this week. I know there's some PPP fraud cases out there. Uh, people being, you know, speaking of exploiting in a negative way, um, there were some PPP fraud cases that are out there. So that that's sad to see. I did see. So a, wait, so uh, so on one what case they're trying to? I think they were saying that they had employees in each of their entities and filed for whatever some astronomical number on each entity, and they had no employees. Um, and I think somebody ratted them out, and that's how it's going. That, that was the, that was the whistleblower uh, article that I saw floating around. Correct. And then I. But did, doesn't the bank have to underwrite them that they had employees? Yeah, that's all I understand about the article is that you know the bank should have had to do the underwriting. So who was actually fraud? Maybe, or, may, um, or or maybe they, or was it they had employees but they don't have employees now? But then that's when everything you know. They, yeah, what I've heard alone. That was the purpose of the loan. If you had employees laid off, is to get them back to work. So I, I yeah, but I'm saying ready. if they were laid, if they were laid off after you know before all this happened. But that being said, that's going to get caught down the road because you're going to get you know when you go to repay this loan, you're going to get you know you're going to, it's going to analyze your financials to see you know what you're exempt from and or what you can um, forgive and what you can't forgive. Yeah, the government. Uh, if the feds want to get you, stay away um it's just not worth it and uh, then i think i saw something that they're shutting down the eidl program um i saw that yeah, I, saw it. I saw that today too so um other than that i think the market was jamming uh, i'm getting ready for the big snowstorm this weekend you ready you got your shovel snowstorm Dude, they're, talking snow about, they're talking about snow i swear to god it's supposed to be 30, not 34 degrees tomorrow night bro it's 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 not gonna snow i promise you All maybe right. where you maybe where you live yeah, maybe yeah. So far north, uh, which is completely different than everybody else listening lives. I yeah. mean, you're right. It, it, you're right. I mean, today's 61, low of 36, and then tomorrow is 50 to 37. So, like, the only way it could potentially have a little bit of snow is if it happens tonight into tomorrow morning. But that's it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pick up my blueberry bushes tomorrow, and I can't afford it to be freezing cold and uh, stunt the growth of them. So it's it's not going to snow. Hey. Um, so next week we've got Zach Bryant from yep. real estate agent uh, with Northrop Realty. Um, who else is on next week? Jesse Spun, who's a flipper and a wholesaler. Um, he's going to come on tell us how 
his business has done nothing but gotten better since all this has gone down, which I'm interested to find out about. Uh, okay. Thursday, Friday, I'm actually traveling, so you might be on your own. Uh, but I will check in and let everybody know how the airport was. Uh, Where are you going? I am going to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, to help, help a friend out vet a deal. So um, I need to get out of the house, dude. I can't sit around anymore. I got to so, go. Is there, is there going to be anybody else on that plane with you? Like, what, what do you think? Dude, I don't know. How much was your plane ticket? It was it was status quo. It wasn't any cheaper. So I'm assuming for what it costs that I will be the hopefully it's like a private jet for me. Um, and then I did see an article actually that airfare potentially could go up because they are doing social distancing and they do have to do additional cleaning. Um, so is it Southwest? Be, Southwest. Yep. I had my credit for my mastermind uh, that I was supposed to go to that got canceled. Um, so with that being said, I applied it. I was thinking I was going to get some $37 ticket and that was not the case, my friend. And how much was it? 149. Yeah. Was that's one, like, one that's most, you know, come to think about it. I actually think you owe me money from national. I, I think do. you owe me money. I think you owe me money from the flight and, uh, no, I paid, I paid for the hotel. I owe you flight. You paid for the hotel. I told you, send me a Venmo. Venmo <laughs> me. So. Oh, Rich Levine, um, he's, getting us a, he's getting us a private jet. Yeah, a, a Southwest private jet. Yeah, I've got a we've got a we've got a flight scheduled to Florida because we were supposed to go to spring break April fourth. The place, the house that I got um, at the beach wouldn't give us our money back, so they said you can either um, reschedule. You can reschedule, or we'll give you half back. And I was like, I don't want half back. I want it all back or reschedule. So we like, yeah, it's probably safe to say we can go in July. So we went to the end. So we went in the end of July. Um, we're going in the end of July. So we're going to see how five people with, you know, with kids fly on the Southwest. And, you know, the interesting thing is with airfare is it was absolutely crazy because the airfare was, um, you know, I, I, if you look at the algorithms that the, that the, the airlines did, the airfare was super, super expensive. I'm just going to leave it at that because I waited till last minute before I booked it. And then I changed it. And, you know, in order to change it, I was able to get a discount. But then I but then I was like, maybe I should just cancel this and then go back. But now you can't really cancel. It's just credits. So the problem right. is, is I had, I had expensive airfare to begin with. And now it went from, you know, 400 bucks a flight to each way to like 49 bucks. So now I just got tons and tons and tons of credit times five people. I'm not even really use those credits. So we'll roll, roll my credit that I apparently owe you for Nashville in. Nope. Nope. Add it. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't even show up in Nashville. I should get a credit for that. So um, there's pictures of that floating around. But either way, everybody enjoy the weekend. Uh, excited for next week to talk to Zach Bryant and Jesse Spun. Um, I, I, I'm, gonna throw, I'm throwing Aaron Foster on next week with or without you because he's got that case study ready. So we'll talk about that. Hey, Ian, when I – um, we're going to hop off in a sec. Can you look in the private, there's a private chat on here. Yeah. Um, Matt put everything on the private chat. Can you just cut it, cut and paste all that stuff into the comment section? Will do. Um, while you're doing that, I'll, uh, you know, I'll throw out the theme music. Thank you, Mr. Levine for, uh, for sharing everything about the Vegas trip. Uh, 34. Well, let's just put it on screen while we're here. Just like taking a private jet these days. Yeah, that's correct. My buddy flew to Vegas, round trip, $34, no BS, only guy in the plane, and that was a month ago. All, all, good, all, all good stuff. 
Yeah, I'm. Uh, I don't know how I feel about planes. I was talking about that to my to my neighbor who's uh, who's a pilot yesterday. Right. Um, and it was very very interesting because he said a you know a good bit, um, at least the airline that he flies, a good bit of uh, the revenue that those airlines get are actually flying cargo, uh, not necessarily just passengers. So you know a lot of them they wanted to continue to work because you know they need to get cargo to certain. Uh, cargo, cargo to certain places, and they have accounts with, um, you know, bigger companies, Amazon, FedEx, uh, the Postal Service, and things like that. But in general, it looks like airlines are probably going to have to raise prices. At least that's what they're saying. Although that doesn't necessarily make sense. I, I you know, I'm not smart enough to know exactly how that's going to be set up. But it doesn't seem like for a long time they're going to be able to utilize the middle rows. So you know, a third of the planes are going to be empty. So they're saying. Well, we, you know, we have to uh, up the price and there's obviously additional cleaning and additional things that are going to happen, have to happen. So they're going to up the price. But then if you up the price, then, you know, less people are going to potentially fly or can afford to fly. So, you know, this is a ripple effect in so many cases, in so many industries. And, you know, it is, it is what it is. You know, real, you know, real estate in, in general is involved in this in this ripple effect. But. You know, each of us as individuals, we all concentrate on our small scale of investments. Um, and yeah, we we're all cognizant of the the broader level of what's happening in the economy and what's happening in the real estate community. But you know, if we all stay you know small, we stay profitable, we stay nimble, and we can pivot into making you know making changes. And I think that's what uh, the trends really been with every expert that we've talked to recently is. You no, know, it's fine. If I don't do a real estate transaction this month, it's not the end of the world. You know, the ones that are contingent on doing 10 houses a month or wholesaling multiple properties and the ones that had a business model of high volume, uh, low margins, you know, you know, per deal. Yeah, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's going to be wise moving forward. And at the end of the day, you know, whatever your goal is of how much let's just call it revenue you want to make uh, at the end of the year. You know, hopefully you have the mindset that, hey, if I could do one huge deal and make that same amount of money, you know, what's the point of going through the exercise of doing hundreds and hundreds of deals just to make the exact same bottom line number? So, hundred. All right. Anything else? Yeah. Anything else to add yet, Mister? Mister? Nah, it is lunchtime. I gotta eat. I'm dying over here. I'm wasting away to nothing. Look at look at my chins. They're going away. So, but uh, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Real Estate Reserve Podcast. Do us a favor and like, comment, and share our broadcast. It helps the algorithm and helps us spread the word too. Till next time, thank you for tuning in.